The director of music called me up to the piano in front of the class and said, yes, he spoke in a very funny way. He said, yes, Paul Way, you must be in the choir. So when I went to sit down at my desk again, the chap who was sitting next to me said, bad luck, you're in the choir. Um, and I was. But it was, it was an absolute revelation for me. I had never had something like this in my life. And I took to it just like it was always meant for me. And I used to go to every practice and extra practices. And it was an absolute revelation to me. And I just fell into it. And it was my life. Welcome to The Enrichment Project, Path to Purpose, recorded by the mad talent at Solid Gold Podcasts. It is a series of unfiltered and insightful conversations with some of the most remarkable purpose-driven human beings who have all achieved, created, inspired, triumphed or challenged. And we have a great deal to learn from them. It is a quest to uncover and articulate the steps along the way to help you on your own journey of purpose. I am your host, Richard Wright, and I am delighted to have you with me Thank you for the gift of your time. Let's dive straight in. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another exciting show. I'm going to just dive straight in and introduce you to the remarkable human being that I have with me today. His name is Richard Koch. Richard, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So, to South Africans, Richard is extremely well-known, although for a lot of us, we know the back of his head better than we know the front of his face. Um, and that's because he is, I'm coining this, he is South Africa's most loved and most famous conductor. So I've been privileged to have you on the radio, to watch the concerts, to be a part of your journey in such a tiny little way, but yet you've had a massive impact on my life. So thank you for that. And thank you for the gift of your time. I can't wait to explore your journey with you. That's a pleasure. Richard, so I know that your journey with music started many, many years ago, and you were a small boy, you were six years old. Can you tell us a little bit more about that time? Yeah, sure. We lived in Port Elizabeth in a suburb called Warmer, and my mother played the piano in a sort of vamping way. She just did her own thing. She'd had some lessons in syncopation. My sister used to go for piano lessons, and so it was just assumed that I would go for piano lessons. Also, my sister was older than I was. And just around the corner from where we lived was a piano teacher. And the best thing about going to piano lessons was that I got to take my dog. I had a dog, a, a bruck called Dusty, and Dusty. he used to go with me. He was my companion for everything. And he used to come to the piano lessons, lie at my feet, and then we'd walk home together again afterwards. And she was a great piano teacher. She taught me all the basics that I needed to know. And then soon after that, I was sent off to boarding school where I had a, another a much more formidable piano teacher called Miss Bunderman, who was quite Bunderman. She was well endowed in many senses. <laughs> So, so a couple of things here. Number one, I know I went for piano lessons similar age to you. 
musical family my parents decided you know off you go and i wanted to we had a piano in, in the house and i loved tinkling on it and i could play a bit by ear and that was great and off we went and this lady who was an elderly lady and i had these fat little podgy fingers and she would put her fingers on top of mine and push them down into the keys and it was just like oh man the stuff i had to play there it just wasn't as great as the stuff that i could play on my own so i kind of figured what was the point um and i sounded like your dog would have sounded howling i think so i stopped that <laughs> but you but you didn't so boarding school uh, what came next well the boarding school was very interesting because it had no music other than piano lessons that was it oh, right. we used to yeah. sing a hymn in assembly which was rather badly played by the english master and that's all i remember this terribly badly played hymn <laughs> and uh no choir nothing but there was a very interesting experience that I had because my parents, while I was at the sporting school in PE, my parents moved to Cape Town. I don't want to go into too much detail, but therefore I couldn't go home for weekends. So okay. I went home with one of my classmates and his mother one day asked me to sing. And she said, you've got a very nice singing voice. And that was the first time that I ever realized that I could even sing. Wow. So when I went to high school, which was several years later, in Standard 6. The very first week I was there, there were auditions for the choir. And the, the director of music called me up to the piano in front of the class and said, yes, he spoke in a very funny way. He said, yes, boy, you must be in the choir. So when I went wow. to sit down at my desk again, the chap who was sitting next to me said, bad luck, you're in the choir. Um, <laughs> And I was, but it was, it was an absolute revelation for me. I had never had something like this in my life. And I wow. took to it just like it was always meant for me. And I used wow. to go to every practice and extra practices. And it was an absolute revelation to me. And I just fell into it. And it was my life. Wow. Firstly, a shout out to all of the piano teachers at school that have to play the school anthems and the school choruses, because I think most of them sound the same, but it's admirable. I think there's a calling there somewhere. And then secondly, I think you, you were a, um, if I'm right, a counter tenor, is that correct? Yeah, that was later once. Well, okay. my voice never broke. Yeah? It just sort of slid down slowly. And it was another funny Bro story because- It's broken now though. <laughs> no, 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 it did break. But yeah, I'll, okay. I'll tell you about it because uh, okay. when I was in standard nine, I was almost going into matric and I was still singing treble. Okay. My voice by the age of wow. 15 or so, my voice still hadn't broken. And the other boys from my standard were very embarrassed that I was still singing treble. There were two of us, <laughs> uh, a chap called Tim Gray and myself. And so we decided, okay, we better move down in the choir now because it was just a bit infra dig for someone in standard <laughs> nine to be singing treble still. Treble. So I went to, I tried to sing bass and I couldn't. So I tried to sing tenor and I couldn't. But then I went to alto and again, oh. I found my home in the altos. And so either a male alto or a counter tenor means the same thing. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Wow. So for me, <laughs> I went to, um, Halfway through my primary school, went through auditions with the uh, the Drakis and got in and didn't go. Again, it was a it was it was just sport was cool and choir wasn't cool. 
And you somehow, throughout all these years, have made choir cool. I love so, some of my favorite things that you did, um, and, and, and I know I'm skipping some parts and we'll come back, but the Joburg Pops, it was cool. It was really great. So we've got this idea of classical music, and then Richard Koch comes in and says, now hold on two seconds, I think we can do this better. Yeah, well, I think one of the important things that I learned, and I'm, I was not a great sportsman, and this director of music that was at uh, the school where I was, Claude Brown, he referred to rugby as legalized murder and cricket was organized waste of time. So, uh, but I was very happy to be involved on the music side. And my parents were divorced soon after I started at senior school. And the okay. music became a sort of a home for me. He was a very kind man. And he sort of, I can't say he took me under his wing, but suddenly I found that the music had more of a meaning for me. It was where I felt comfortable. And certainly where I was achieving, although I'd never sung in a choir, I soon became quite a good singer. And I was the lead treble and I sang solos and all that stuff. So suddenly I was in a comfortable surrounding where I was doing well. And that was very important for me at that time. And another important thing happened to me then, which has had a bearing on my life, because when my parents were divorced, there was no way I could stay. It was a private school, and I would not have been able to stay at that school. But I think that this director of music had a word with someone high up in the admin of the school, and I was awarded a bursary. Wow. And I would never have been able to stay there. And I've always been extremely grateful for that, because without it, I would never have been able to stay at that school. I might have ended up in a completely different direction, which yeah. is why I've always tried to help people who need helping. Uh, you got to me before I could get to you. I was just about to say, yeah. uh, and you, you've returned that favor on and on and on and on. And that's one of the most remarkable things. You know, it's yeah. one of the most remarkable things about you. So about the music becoming your home. I think that's evident. You are, in, in my mind, the way I see Richard Koch is you are the embodiment of music. It is in you and through you, and you're a vessel almost for this thing. It's so rare for somebody the age you were to find this thing, this meaning that can ultimately become their pursuit, their passion, and that purpose flows right through. It really is quite remarkable. And in this, uh, the Path to Purpose project or show, I've been fortunate to interview a lot of people who have created and inspired and triumphed and done incredible things. But almost without exception, you are um, the first to say at that age, this thing gave me a meaning. And what a joy that must be that it's something that, that you followed throughout your life. Yeah. And, you know, there was a moment, actually, I can remember singing, you won't even know of this carol. It was by a composer called Colin Taylor, and it was called The Three Ships. Now, The Three Ships is fairly common, but this particular composer is not. And I remember being moved by it. So I was probably 13 or 14, okay? Mm. And something happened in this piece. And I remember being touched particularly by it. And that sort of got me hooked on the emotional side of music. And one of the things I've discovered all through my journey is that I have a gift for taking people along with me 
on a journey. And if I want to make people enjoy something, I can make them enjoy it. It might be difficult. It might be awkward. It may be complicated, but I have a gift for making it seem easy and showing them the path. And that has been a real gift that I've treasured all my life. I think a lot of that is being so in touch with this thing that gives you meaning and part of your purpose is, okay, how can I do that? And I guess that's your job as a conductor, right? Is you're in control of this 100, 150 piece orchestra, but yet you can only control a certain amount and otherwise it's, you know, it's up to them. Um, uh, but you're holding it together and you've got the control of this thing. Um, is there a difference between a performance and where you know, everything's got to come together? Are you still in as much control there or, or do you sort of let go of the reins a little bit? And is it different to um, rehearsals, for instance? Yeah, yeah, it's very different to rehearsals. In rehearsals, you can stop and you can talk and you can tell people how you want it and they can do it how you want it or not do it how you want it. It's a psychological game in a way because you have to get 100, 150 people to do what you want. Because all of them, the orchestra particularly, are experts in their field. Mm. And you've got to guide these experts. They all know the music in many cases much better than the conductor because they've played it maybe 10 or 15 times. Whereas the conductor may be conducting it for the first time. So you have to convince them somehow that you really do know what you're talking about and that you can take them along on this journey as well. But also in a performance, you can't stop and talk. So you have to go with the flow. Sometimes uh, the performance takes on a life of its own and actually all you're doing is guiding it from time to time because a lot of the time it's got its own momentum and the combined energies of the orchestra are driving it along. I am just, and in fact, this word conductor is really interesting because in a way you are a conductor of a type of electricity. I mean, mm. you're conducting in that you're guiding, but you're yeah. also a conductor of electricity between the people on the stage and the audience. You're a conduit, if you Conduit, like. yeah, that's the word, uh, yeah. And a focuser of energies. A focuser of energies is a nice way of describing it because that's what you're doing. You're that's what you do. pulling together all these energies on the stage to become one much more powerful current, which is what thrills the audience. You know, when everything is going flat out and full bore, it's electrifying. In the best sense of that word, yeah. You've made it this far, probably because the topic resonated with you. If you're wondering what the show is all about, listen to the trailer at the start of the season and find out how this show is going to help you along your own path to purpose. You've stumbled on a project that is all about purpose. Find out why the guests are all so vastly different, but yet all have so much in common. Hop on board this journey with me, follow the Enrichment Project so that you don't miss out on a single episode and share it with, well, everyone. We are all looking for more meaning in our lives. If the show speaks to your identity or the identity of your brand, 
consider sponsoring a season. Let's make the circle bigger. Back to the episode and thanks for listening. For me, often I've sat in the audience watching and I've watched your movement. I've watched the energy with which you put into that, exactly what you said. And I sit there with my hands and I, I want to, I'm trying to mimic the movements because I want to feel this feeling of, of, wow, being that person who can do this thing and bring it to life. You know, it, it's just the most incredible thing to watch and you, you're remarkably good at it. So in terms of that, and you talk about you want music that moves people. So one of the pieces of music that I've listened to with you conducting, and it is one that has truly, truly moved me, um, where the, at times when tears well up and it, truly moving experience was Mozart's Requiem. I think it's also how, what's going through your own head as you listen to this piece of music, where you're at in your life, what's happening. And that adage of when the pupil is ready, the teacher will appear. It was just one of those moments where I was ready to receive this piece of music, which might sound really, really weird, but that's how it felt for me. Well, Mozart Requiem is a very special piece because Mozart wrote it as he was dying. And the moment when he died is reflected in the music. In one of the movements, the Lacrimosa, which funny enough is about tears, in about bar 12, he finished and wrote no more. And then his student had to take it oh. up and finish it. Zusmeyer had to finish it for him. So we can experience with Mozart the torment and the agony of those final days of his life, short life, but packed with energy. I mean, if ever there was an energetic man, it was Mozart. And he turned out some of the most amazing works in his short life. And the Mozart Requiem is famous in choral circles, certainly, and in many others as well, as the sort of summation of his life and this powerful last statement that he left. And it is extremely powerful. It's a wonderful piece to sing. It's a wonderful piece to conduct. And it's a wonderful piece to listen to as well. So truly moving. So... One of the other things that I've always admired about you and being lucky enough to have my dad, Alan Wright, being part of your choir, I think from the SABC choir days uh, from ages ago, Chanticleer Singers and now uh, Johannesburg Symphony Orchestra Choir. So, um, and often he'd come home from rehearsals or he'd come home after a performance and you'll talk about the way that you interpret the music or what you specifically are wanting out of the, the music. And there've been times where I'm going to be honest and authentic enough to say that he's not quite sure because he's used to it in a certain way. And now there's a different interpretation or different slot. And tell me, tell me a little bit more about that. Where does that come from? Or how do you decide which direction you want to take this piece of music in? Well, I think the conductor's job, and I just want to correct something, it was the Joburg, well, it was the National Symphony Orchestra or the Joburg Festival Orchestra that I've worked with. Uh, the Joburg Symphony Orchestra is something slightly different. Sorry. Um, but that's all right. But uh, in preparing a work for performance, as a conductor, your responsibility is, number one, to try to create something which was as close as you think it was to the composer's wishes. The okay. Music is such an interesting thing because until it sounds, it's just ink on a page. It's not actually music until it sounds. So we have to bring it to life. And that's my job as the conductor is to steer it in the direction which I think 
was what the composer wanted. And uh, sometimes it's an arrangement, which, you know, has added a different layer onto it. Sometimes you try as far as possible to go back to the original so that it's as close to when it was first written. But of course, we don't know what it sounded like because there are no recordings from those times. Yeah. There are recordings from later on when you have a better idea of what the work sounded like to the conductor, often to the composer, often conducted it himself. But okay. you have to try to bring it to life as you think the composer wanted it. And many conductors have different ideas on that. So naturally, you're going to have two different interpretations from two different conductors. Yes. So that's amazing. It's an incredible part about the music. It almost becomes a living, breathing thing. Instead of you know, the ink on the page, the conductor creates this living, breathing thing. Yeah. And that's why going to live concerts is so interesting. When you go to see a painting, the painting remains the same every time. Mm. You may find new things to look at in it, but a piece of music, you have a blank canvas and you have the paints and the brushes and two people may have very different images of what the music is. Yeah. Oh, wow. Creating color through music. Um, uh, I like that analogy. So I know we've, we've missed a whole lot here and there's been lots about your journey and the various choirs and orchestras and developments within South Africa and funding and all that kind of thing. So there's a lot of that. Um, but the part I'd like to hone in a little bit. So before I forget, just let's go back a little bit. So in terms of the conductor, you have the purpose of this piece of music or your purpose is to create a sound that is as close as possible to what you think was intended. And then you've got to get everybody else on board with a shared sense of purpose to have them all working together with you to create this thing. And that's quite an interesting thing about purpose is getting people on board with you. And, and clearly you have that ability to get people on board. Um, so one of the other things that you've done incredibly successfully is you have created your own projects and you have tied them together with a charity or an organization or something in terms of giving back. And I guess it's music meaning more to more people. Um, can you take me through that a little bit? Certainly. So right from the beginning, when I left school, I took on a job as a church organist in a very poor suburb of Cape Town, observatory. And the okay. kids in that choir, it was an all-male choir, and there were probably 15 to 20 kids in the choir, were all from somewhat deprived homes. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things that my first tasks was to weld them into a unit and to give them a sense of enjoyment and aspiration in what they were doing. So I would organize uh, outings up the mountain. I would organize football matches. I would take them to concerts. And I realized very quickly that actually this was a sort of calling that, and I could do it. I could do it quite easy, straight out of school. This was because the director of music at the school was good enough to train me to such a level that I could take on a job as soon as I'd left school. And I did that. And it gave me an idea of what it was all about to run a choir, because it's not just about the music. Yeah. It's like a whole lifestyle. And many of these kids hadn't had opportunities to go away to summer schools and 
choir camps and things. So I gave them those opportunities. Once I started working, I realized, and I also had a bursary to go to university. So that I felt needed to be paid back in some way as well, not necessarily to the people who gave it to me, but by doing similar things for people throughout my life. As soon as I came back to Johannesburg in 1980, I set up a trust called the Apollo Music Trust, which had as its objects to provide chamber music in Johannesburg, because there was very little chamber music, and to provide opportunities for young musicians to study. And so over the years, I've raised money in one way or another, and we've enabled dozens of students to get a step up in their at the beginning of their careers by going to university, by attending master classes, by going to study abroad. We've helped about 60 students over the last 20 years, let's say. Wow. Uh, and that's really been a great thing to have done because many of these kids also are from very deprived backgrounds and would never have had the opportunity to do what they've mm -hmm. done. More than that, uh, many of the concerts that we do are connected to a charity of some sort. So, in fact, I can't say all, but almost all the concerts that I do are now connected to a charity of some sort, because I realized that by encouraging people to attend a concert, they can also become donors to a bigger cause. So it could be Lifeline, it could be hospice, it could be rotary, it could be bursaries for young people. And so we are all winners. The people taking part in the concert have a fantastic experience. The people in the audience have a fantastic experience. And because of that combined thing, we are able to generate money which goes to help a really good cause. And it's worked well for everyone. Mm. Wow, that's, as I said earlier, extremely admirable um, and amazing to put something back into something that you are so in love with. I think it is really a, a love affair with music. What you've also done, uh, so there are two things. Number one, I've been to a couple of concerts, um, composers, music that I've never heard of. You've introduced me to a very vast array of some modern, more classical music and some pieces that are obscure. And then you've also done a lot to make um, classical music, although it's not a term you know, I really want to use, but more accessible with a greater audience. Can you talk to me about those two things? Definitely. So one of the things we have a duty as musicians is to perform not only the music of older composers or long dead composers. So music is not just a museum. It's a living thing. And there are many wonderful living composers, and we need to give their works an airing as well. So, for example, in the Joburg International Mozart Festival, for many years we've had a composer in residence, and we have workshops for young composers, because it's very difficult to get a step onto the ladder when you're a composer. As it is for singers, uh, I've provided many opportunities for the first time to young singers on the stage, on a big stage with an orchestra and a choir and all that sort of stuff. Uh -huh. And I'm always amazed when I say, have you sung this work before? And they say, no, 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 this is my first time on the stage. I'm always stunned uh -huh. by that. And it, it's a real big responsibility and a huge privilege 
to give people a step up when they need it. And I've been through the Apollo Music Trust, which is the trust that I set up, we've been able to give people an injection of money when they most need it. And that's been really important. What was the, sorry, you had a second part of your question. As so well. The accessible part, the different types of music, like for instance, the Joburg Pops and things like that. Yeah, this was interesting because when I was a student, I spent one year in England after I'd finished at UCT. I spent one year as a student in England at the Royal School of Church Music. And one day, two of the senior students came to me and they said, you know what's amazing about you? Even with crap music was the term they used. Even with crap music, you can make it sound good. <laughs> and <laughs> That's a because talent. <laughs> in the church music, and in church music, there is what they would term a lot of crap music, okay? It's not first-rate music, but it's useful music. So I was able to make it sound and feel good to these students because I was working with a student choir and I realized quite early on that I can as I said earlier I can take people on this journey and make them feel good about it even though they may not want it to be feel good about it and the other thing that's really interesting is that people arrive my Choir rehearsals are always mostly in the evening because I work with amateurs. And yes. people arrive tired from work. They arrive grumpy because they've had a row at home. But by the time the rehearsal is finished, they go away refreshed and bubbling and full of energy because music has this incredible ability to awaken things inside you. It's to, is it the endorphins, whatever it is. That's it, it yes. makes you feel good. It makes you feel good. And that's also with audiences. I can send people away from a concert on a high because they've experienced something very special in a concert. And that has been a, a gift which I know that I have, that I can make people feel good about themselves and send them on their way with a new lease of life. I think you, as much as music has given to you, and it really has, from it being your home to, to it creating a life for you, these experiences, this, the wealth of joy is brought to your life. You've given way more than that away to everybody else. And what a, what a privilege it must be and what an incredible feeling it must feel uh, to turn around and take a bow in front of a packed auditorium of people that are just as you say, on fire um, and feeling yeah. so good about what they've just experienced. Uh, yeah. Quite something. So Richard, two things here. Firstly, I know that over the last couple of years, and probably not just the last couple of years, and, and you'll be in, obviously in a much better position than me to answer this question, but, and that's why I'm asking you, is that there's a lot of free music out there right now. Over the last years, it, there's been a real decline in people actually attending live performances. How have you dealt with that challenge? And, and even now, I know you've done a lot of work throughout lockdown and now that's remote music and people don't even have to come live and people have really enjoyed that. It's been an amazing way to get people to, to stay upbeat or to just give them a bit of an injection of joy in, in everything, in the midst of everything going on. Um, can you discuss some of those challenges and, and how you have found some solutions to those? Yeah, I don't think declining audiences are anything new. I think audiences have been declining for many, many years. Uh, and everyone thinks 
audiences for classical music are old and gray, but basically they've nearly always been old and gray. <laughs> so uh, this is something we've been dealing with over many, many years. We've seen audiences grow and we've seen audiences slim down. And it's an ongoing problem. And perhaps in recent years, with the fall off in funding, it's been more difficult. So we've got to find new ways of getting people to concerts. And one of those ways, interestingly enough, has been to add new elements, either probably always visual elements. People are very visual now. They're used to watching television. They're used to watching stuff online where it's visual and oral. And we've added ballet, we've added film, we've added uh, photography, acting, we've added um, circus acts, whatever it takes to get people to come to concerts. Get them in the seats. Yeah, keep them on the seats and keep people yeah. coming to the hall. So I'm not afraid of adding stuff to music. Some people think, no, it must just be music, pure and simple. But it ain't like that anymore. And especially yeah. for young children, I've done hundreds of children's concerts over the years, schools concerts. And where in the past kids would come and sit quite patiently while you played Peter and the Wolf, for example, these days they don't sit so patiently and they want to see Peter and the Wolf acted out by ballet dancers or actors or gymnasts or whatever it is. And so we've done that and it really makes a difference. It's not gonna get any easier and lockdown, I mean, it's been punishing for musicians because all their work yeah. has gone up. I, you know, I'm used to doing something like 140 events a year wow. of one sort or another, either talks or lectures wow. or concerts or recitals. And from April to now, Zippo. And that's very challenging financially and very challenging psychologically also. We have done some online stuff. We have definitely done online stuff, but it's not quite the same. It's a lot of work and a lot of finicky work. So we've had to learn new skills. And we've noticed that the audiences paying audiences for online are just going one way and that's down. Yeah. Free stuff online has done quite well, but yeah. people yeah. are not so good on paying for online stuff. So yeah. whilst there's plenty of online stuff, we've got big competition because yeah. people like Glyndebourne and the Met and the New York Phil have all loaded up quite stuff free. Yeah, Correct. because they so, don't need all that income from it. Yeah. Because they've got lots so, of money. We don't have lots of money. <laughs> so I can so relate. Um, so as a professional speaker, exactly the same. Beginning of lockdown, lost absolutely all my future income. And then I had to compete against a bunch of really well-known, huge, big speakers who just dumped free stuff onto the, the internet. And and I, why are we going to pay for Richard when I can get you know um, some of these really big names in to come and speak? So I totally get that. And I've had to figure out what I've done quite successfully is to ask a question for an ex-client and say, well, how can I help you? What is it that you need and how can I help you? And there's perhaps a lesson there that, you know, what do you want? What do you want from us? What would you be prepared to pay for? But it's a tougher question. And I think in terms of music, 
the fact that we have access to so much music and these massive online libraries and, you know, it's like Netflix that you can get for 125 rand a month or something like that. And, and that's not even what one DVD used to cost you. So, you know, how are people making money? And, and music, I think it's 65 rand or something like that that I pay and I can basically download almost anything. Um, so, so although that's amazing, fabulous, it's great. But for professional musicians, it must be an incredibly, incredibly scary thing. Uh, do you think that we're going to see fewer professional musicians purely because there just is less money in it? I think this is sadly true because even now, seven months into lockdown, and it will be a couple of months yet, people have to make a living somehow. And if you can't do what you love doing, which is playing the violin or playing the cello or the oboe, whatever it is, you have to generate income somehow, and we are going to lose some people to other professions. And that's very sad because many of them, like me, love what they're doing. In order to go into music, you have to love what you're doing because you're not going to make a lot of money out of it. Yeah. It's a calling. So it's a calling. And for many people, that calling has come at a price now with lockdown. And sadly, I think we are going to lose some users. Some of them have found lockdown good because they've taken to different mediums and been able to cope with that. And many of them are teaching more now online and many people are working harder now than they worked before. But I think, to be honest, that from a concert giving point of view, we are almost going to have to start from scratch again. Audiences have got out of the habit of going to concerts. They've got out of the habit of paying for concerts. They've got out of the habit of sitting with a thousand people in close confines. They're going to have to get over that. We're really, I believe we're going to have to start pretty well from scratch. So, So I think there are two ways to look at that. I might look at it from the other way around. And we saw this in the real estate industry where there was this backlog. Nobody could do anything. Properties couldn't transfer. Nobody could move home. They couldn't go to where they had already decided they were going to be. And a lot of people thought that when real estate opened up again, there was going to just be the stagnant silence of nothing happening. And it was the opposite. It was a, it was a real backlog of people needing and craving, you know, this thing need to be able to move. I want to be able to move. I need to be able to get out of the position where I am right now because financially I've been impacted. I might have lost a job. My salary might have been cut and actually I have to move. So there was a real need. And as a result, the property market literally has just taken off in the last couple of months. You don't think perhaps there's a possibility where maybe give it a little bit of time, but that people just are craving getting back and seeing the back of your head again and just can't wait to hear this music. And maybe there's some of that. They definitely are. And we did a survey after one of our online events, which had about 13,000 viewers, which was Starlight Classics online. And R&B. R&B, yeah. But 80% of them said, please, let's have it live. So we know that people want it live. But I think there's also a nervousness about being in a room with 1,000 people. So we're going to have to get over that initial nervousness And maybe that's one of my jobs now is to convince people that they don't need to be nervous. But I need to know that it's safe also. Because what I'd hate to have is a thousand people and become a super spreader. For sure. No, for sure. And and, and that is your job to be in control, let's be honest. And it's something you're really good at. So 
I would imagine I would imagine that you would control it extremely well. So one of the things that you hit on there and is one of the six steps that I've identified in terms of the path to purpose is that there's always a cost. And it's the last one, it's T, it's called tackle the cost. And you identify quite a lot of those things right now. Purpose comes at a cost. And from a musician's point of view, it's not going to be a big earner. Um, there's a lot of sacrifice that, and a lot that you're going to have to put in. And from a fear point of view, as you mentioned, that's one of the other things is harnessing those fears and overcoming the fears. Are there any moments that you can look back on, these big fearful moments in this magnificent purpose that you have, you thought, okay, hold on, this is a big scary moment and maybe I might lose it or maybe I need to go in a different direction and that's also scary. Is there anything like that that comes to mind? Yeah, there have been moments like that. And in, in fact, I found when I changed from one situation to another, for example, when I stopped being a student and got my first real job, I found that a, an incredibly emotional time because I realized I was leaving this rather comfortable life as a student behind. And I was now starting out in the real world at a pitiful salary, I might tell you, when I started teaching in the UK, because I spent eight years in the UK, one year studying and then seven years teaching. And you were never going to earn very much as a teacher in a small choir school in a provincial city in England, which is what where I was at Chichester in Sussex. However, we got over that. And when I came back to South Africa, that was another big emotional moment for me because I realized I was leaving behind my seven very happy years in a prep school and going into another SABC. big situation now at the SABC in a city which I didn't know at all. I knew no one in Joburg. I was coming to a big, brash city, which I didn't really know at all. So oh. those were big moments for me. And then I was retrenched twice at SABC. Once I went to teach at WITS. And the second time was when I was running the National Symphony Orchestra. And then they retrenched the orchestra. It was the first thing to go. After 94, McKinsey's came into the SABC. Mm. And the first thing they said, an orchestra has no place in a broadcasting corporation. Get rid of it. And I would remember I was in Bloemfontein at a choir course when somebody phoned me and said, you're out, basically. Mm. And that was a moment of great revelation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, it was an extraordinary moment when I realized that, you know, we yeah. were now going to be on our own. It yeah. took a while to sort it all out. Uh, but it was also a big opportunity for us because we were no longer bound by the the parameters of the SABC. Yeah, we could break out of our chains. And, and then the other big time was when I became freelance. So in 2000 or 1999, I decided to go freelance. And I gave all that up and I found a little office in Parkhurst. And I said to uh, Caroline Kennard, who was working with me, We'll give it three months. We'll see how it goes. And 20 years later, I'm still here and going, well, until seven months ago, growing, going great guns. <laughs> 
Well, it still is. As you said, this time right now, again, is another opportunity for you to find that other thing. It's always like that, especially when when we have this purpose that is so big, we will always find a way. We will overcome. And, um, and that's the remarkable thing about purpose is when you have it, those big moments that you think are the end of it or the scary things, somehow the other side is even better. So if you're telling me that things are tough right now, I can't wait to see what comes out the other side from Richard Koch. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's that old story of when one door closes, another opens. Sure. And that is for sure. That's been very true in my life. Yeah. But you've still got to do the work and you've got to open the doors. And you've also got to keep on trying. Some of the doors don't open. And, and then you've got to you know, take the risk of you going through a door yeah. and you can't see what's on the other side. So there's a lot more than just uh, another door opens. We create our own opportunities. We create our own luck. And when we are that open, because we are passionate and we purpose-driven, Somehow we do. We open the right doors or we, we figure out what's on the other side. Um, so there, there's just two more things. And it's been hard work. No, it, uh, no, I can't believe that. It's been hard work. No, surely there's no hard work involved, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that is part of the cost. That, that's it. It's nothing substantial yeah. comes without hard work. And there's blood, sweat, and tears that has gone into the magic that you've made, the moments that you have enthralled us with. And yeah, just sure, hats off. Hats off to you. But Richard, before you go, two questions I'd like to ask you, please. One is tips for people who are feeling perhaps a little purposeless. They, are, they haven't got the same sense of this is my meaning, this is my joy, this is my happiness, and this is what I want to do. Um, what would your tips be for someone like that? Okay, that, that's an interesting question because I do get people phoning me to say my son or my daughter loves playing music but I've told them that there's no money in music. They're not going to make a career. There's no money in it. <laughs> there's no money in it. Right. So my advice to them is if they really feel passionate about it, and I think it is about passion. Uh, if you've got a passion for something, you will make it work. And it's that passion which carries you through, through those dark days when things are not feeling so good, things are not so good, you haven't got so much money, but you've still got the passion for it. And I'm a great believer in having a, a love that you talk about your love or my love for music. It's actually a passion I have to share it with other people. And I think perhaps that's what I've enjoyed most about my career is sharing my passion with other people. And I would encourage if people have a passion that they share it with other people, but live out your passion because everything else by comparison is going to be boring. That's a great answer. And it really is that. And don't do it for you. So one of the other things I identified is giving a damn. What do you give a damn about? And giving a damn of, for, for more than just you. Do it for what is that? What is that thing? Can, you know, and that doesn't even have to be big a lot of the time. We think that this, this, this journey has to be massive. We've got to do these huge things. And it isn't. I mean, your journey is exactly like that. You were six years old and there was a dog under the piano and you were banging away at the piano. That, that was a, what, what a small start, you know, but following that and getting in touch with that. So thank you. That's very powerful. And then the last thing I want to ask you, and um, I think I could write a eulogy quite successfully for you. But if, you know, one day you're not here and somebody stands up and says something about you, what would you most want to be celebrated for? I almost think that you've just answered that in the previous question. But if you had to articulate yeah. that, what would that be? I think uh, I'd most like to be remembered for the joy that I've brought people 
through music and for the opportunities that I've been able to give to other young people to experience that joy. Also, it could be school kids, it could be adults, or it could be students that I've helped by providing finance for them to experience that joy themselves that I've had. And I've seen it in some of them mm. when they've been successful. And there are quite a few now who've been extremely successful and who are enjoying what yes. they're doing. That gives me enormous pleasure. Mm. And to see audiences, you know, Sorry. especially when we've got a big audience of 5,000 people cheering and stamping and just oh. having a jaw. I love it. And that's what brings me enormous pleasure. Yeah. Fantastic. So one of my favorite pieces of music is Jesus Joy of Man's Desiring. And one of my favorite, and it's a very moving piece for me, just it's got memories attached. Um, but that word joy, we don't use it enough. Then finally, I need to throw this in because this is probably the only time in my life I'm ever going to have this opportunity. So there's a piece of music that means a lot to me, right? And we're talking eulogies. So Pachabal, right? His canon, yeah. right? Can you, can you just explain what the canon is and a little bit about that piece of music? Yeah. So that piece has a, what we call in music, a ground bass. It goes, tom, bom, 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 bom. And then it happens again and again and again and again and again. So it's eight, eight notes. Yeah, however many bars. It's, it's a pattern which is repeated. It's what we call in music an ostinato. Mm -hmm. It's just repeated over and over again. And over the top of it, there are two violin parts. One starts and the other one follows shortly after. They play exactly the same music at a certain time interval, and it fits together perfectly. Two lines of music going along, and it gets more and more complicated, and the other one gets more and more complicated, but it all fits together on this firm rock foundation of the bass notes. Right. And it's a very simple, a very ancient musical form, mm -hmm. canon, Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach was a great master of canons. And uh, Pachelbel was in that same era and in that same sort of school. And it's a very simple device, but a very effective one. And the joy of that piece is that it starts simple, becomes more complicated and goes simple again at the end. And you almost don't know what's happening, but you know that there's this incredible architecture of this piece. It forms a beautiful bow, like a rainbow. And it's very satisfying to listen to. And if you then want to delve deeper, if you discover what a canon is, you can delve deeper into music and discover all sorts of other canons. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I, I actually want to send you a recording I put up a little while back. So this is something, so I've done in my own work, I've done a whole lot of helping people to write their eulogies. And because that, that really is what we're doing is you, it's goals. We're setting goals into the future because nobody ever wants to die now and just be remembered for what they've accomplished now. You know, we, well, very few of us have got to that point where we're ready. What you're going to tell everybody else is, I'm happy with that. You know, all of us want a little bit more or a little, you know, so we're writing goals. So what I've always said, and it's one of my favorite pieces of music, and you've just described it perfectly. So I want it played at my celebration of life. We don't use the word funeral. It's my celebration of life. And part of my journey the last four years with cancer is you've been told you're going, you've got six months left. You really, you go there and you start to plan the celebration. And um, that is what is going to be played. 
And I'll tell you why. Everybody, somebody's going to stand up and explain. And maybe, you know, if you, if we stay in each other's journey long enough, you could be the person because you'll explain it better than anybody else. But essentially those eight notes, that is my heartbeat. I came into this world with just that heartbeat. And that heartbeat plays throughout the entire piece of music. It's the rock bed, as you've described, of me and my life. And then as my life became more complex and as people came into my life, the music became more um, intricate and, and, and it was built to this crescendo. And eventually from the crescendo of my life where it was, there was so much happening and busyness and kids and all, grandkids and all sorts. And then it, it starts to literally fall down and wind down until just the last eight pieces notes play again and that's me and then it stops and obviously I'm no longer here and essentially what I want people to know at that celebration is that you were part of the color of my music you were the, the intricacy and all the pieces that that made it this beautiful thing on top of these eight notes that that is you and that's why you were here celebrating and then as people go away, they're going to listen to, and this is the cool thing about music. So I don't know if you've ever heard of Matt Rach. No. And I'm going to send this to you. As soon as, as soon as we disconnect from me, I'm going to send this to you because Richard, I think you'll love this. So Matt Rach is a German. And when he was 16, he recorded, it was one of the first YouTube movies. It plays electric guitar. And he literally put together his own version of this 300 year old piece of music um, and it's all there it is magnificent and my point is that you come into this life and you get to play it the way you want to play it you get to interpret the music the way you want to interpret it you get to create this music and you have created this incredible incredible music of your life that is Richard Koch that you've shared with so many people so thank you so so much for your time anything else that you would like to add before we say goodbye no, I just want to thank you for this conversation because, as you were saying, this is just another of those strands that comes into your life and goes out again. And that's uh, part of this whole fabric that we are part of as interacting human beings. And it's very, very special because it's what distinguishes us from so many other creatures on the earth is that we can share these emotional experiences and experience the highs and lows and you know it leads it makes us richer and warmer and better people fantastic well thank you for playing so much music in my life and being so much of the music literally in my life and i wish you every success richard cock who is a conductor mc a facilitator an educator i know that richard does keynotes and works with companies talking about the conductor and management within industry and organizations in a fascinating talk so get hold of him you can reach him at richardcock.co.za richard thank you so much for your time and uh, all the best to you hope to see you on a stage soon that's a great pleasure cheers thank you richard bye cheers Thank you for staying right to the end of the episode and for joining me on the Enrichment Project. Before you go, please share this episode with your friends and your colleagues. They will thank you, I'm sure. Remember that you can catch each Path to Purpose episode by watching on YouTube or if you prefer, on your favorite podcast app. The link to my book, The Power of Purpose, is in the show notes. Please go and check it out. It's a rad account of my own story of purpose and resilience and my fight against brain cancer. 
I finished six full Ironman events, a number of multi-stage mountain bike races, nine Ironman 70.3 races, including the Ironman World Championships, and a bunch of other endurance events, all with stage four brain cancer, because I wanted it that badly, and getting to the finish line meant that much to me. As a professional inspirational speaker, business and life coach, author and storyteller, I'd love to add more value to you or your organization. Please find more details on my website, IamRichardWright.com and book me today for a live or virtual keynote, a masterclass, workshop or coaching session or please follow my journey on Facebook, I am Richard Wright, Twitter, The Right Rich, Instagram, I am Richard Wright or on LinkedIn. I'd love the opportunity to enrich your team. Thank you to the professional crew at Solid Gold Podcasts for the support, the talent, and the mad skills. And to Anna Hick for her creativity and genius video magic. Thank you. You all rock. Bye.